Psalm 58. Somebody says, well, what in the world does Psalm 58 have to do with Mother's Day? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Because everywhere I turn, moms are concerned and very, very upset about the world in which we live. And about the world that their children are being raised in and the world that their grandchildren are going to be raised in and their great-grandchildren are going to be raised in. And so this morning, I have an encouragement in about the middle of the sermon, if I can ever make it there, uh, for moms uh, this Mother's Day. Now, don't let me forget at the end of the service, I got a little note, all right? Don't let me forget. Kathy, I see you. Thank you. So what we're going to be doing, I have a write-up, and I want to read it to you. How many people remember Chuck Colson? Yeah, some of you older folks remember Chuck Colson. Pretty big deal, Chuck Colson was. Chuck Colson had the great privilege in the early 1990s of speaking at the Harvard Business School. I've prepared a brief write-up for us. I want to read it to you, all right? Please pay attention. There was a time in the not-too-distant past where the words recorded in the 58th Psalm would have seemed unreal in American politics and society. Psalm 58 is all about evil rulers. Those of you who are fortunate enough to remember the pleasant days of the American political scene will recall also that America was blessed with many leaders who, for the most part at least, seemed to have the best interest of the American people in mind. But I think we can all agree those days are far behind us now. And therefore, Psalm 58 seems to be a fitting prophetic description of our times. In fact, those outside the church and outside the Christian faith can even see that something is wrong. In the year 1991, Chuck Colson gave an address on ethics at the Harvard Business School. Just a short time before Colson spoke, the business school established a chair on ethics which recognized the moral decline of American leadership as a significant social issue. Colson was invited to speak before this highly intellectual and critical body. He expected the worst. It was just a few short years before that the Nobel Peace winning prize neurobiologist Sir John Eccles was lampooned when he dared to suggest that while human brain cells could be accounted for through evolutionary process, human consciousness of the mind is something that must come from God. But as Chuck Colson began to review the many moral failures amongst the political leaders of the day, he was given a surprisingly respectful opportunity to be heard. Colson mentioned the Keating Five, who were five U.S. senators tried by a tribunal of other senators for the savings and loans scandal. Senator Dave Durenberger, who was censored by the Senate. Marion Barry, the then mayor of D.C., who was arrested for drug use. Congressional leaders who have been implicated, indicted, and found guilty of various crimes by the droves. Then Colson mentioned what was perhaps the most unethical incident of the time, the HUD scandal in which people were embezzling large amounts of money from funds intended to help the poor and disadvantaged. 
Well, coming into our present day, Mr. Coulson would be rolling over in his grave. In the last several months, the governor of New York has been implicated in a terrible scandal involving the deaths of hundreds of elderly in nursing homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. The current president's son has credible allegations of drug use, child trafficking, and corruption against him. Both political parties have a seemingly endless laundry list of fraud, corruption, and general bad ethics plaguing them. This culture of corruption permeates our society from the top down, a corruption which is an epidemic all during a terrible pandemic. This same corruption forced the Harvard Business School to recognize the problem even though they had no answer for it then, nor do they have an answer for it now. Today, we have throngs of people, some of whom are followers of the Democratic Party, others Republicans, both of which seem bent on blaming the political policies of their opposing leaders for lack of proper employment, declining prosperity, poverty, corruption, etc. It seems the common person perceives political leaders who are in power, who are usually wealthy with jobs, housing, and plenty of food. They, re- they regard them as directly responsible for the ills of our society. Many people feel powerless to change anything for the better. This has led to national despair for those on both sides of the aisle. What we must remind ourselves is that power and prosperity accompany each other as do powerlessness and neediness, regardless if the people in power are democratically elected or if they rule as unelected autocrats. Very often, people who are at the bottom of the totem pole of our culture simultaneously overestimate their leader's ability to fix the ills of our society while grossly underestimating the true forces which really dictate what happens in our world. Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. David is speaking of a similar truth in the 58th Psalm. Paul and David both suggest that something supernatural is behind the scenes of our world and directly influencing the events that surround us. Let us come to understand the supernatural worldview of the Bible and glean wisdom from the Lord through David concerning why our world is the way it is and how and what we can do about it. I have several simple points. Number one, the supernatural worldview of the Bible. Number one, the supernatural worldview of the Bible. Number two, a description of the unjust gods in verses 1 and 2. Number three, a description of fallen humanity in verses 3 through 5. Number four, an imprecatory prayer in verses 6 through 9. And an encouraging conclusion in verses 10 and 11. That's the supernatural worldview 
a description of the unjust gods, a description of fallen humanity, an imprecatory prayer. The word imprecatory means curse. And an encouraging conclusion. Everybody ready? Say amen. All right, here we go. I want to introduce you to the supernatural worldview of the Bible. The Bible was written in a time and an era of human history where rationalism, modernism, philosophical sciences, rationalism, all these things that have permeated our society for many, many years, those things were non-existent in the ancient world. I want to share with you uh, sort of what's going on behind the scenes in the first verse because our interpretation of Psalm 58 hinges on this first verse. The New International Version renders verse 1, Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? The proper translation is found in the English Standard Version. And as a grammarian, there's some very fascinating things going on in the Bible behind the text in verse 1. See, in the ancient world, the Jewish people viewed their God, Yahweh, Jehovah, they viewed their God as the God who was at the top of the food chain. The Bible also gives us this supernatural worldview in itself. I want to share with you a very powerful passage of Scripture in the 32nd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. I'll quote it to you. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. The Bible says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. What in the world is Moses talking about? What is this event where God divided mankind? What does it mean that God fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God? Well, there's one great event that comes to mind when God divided humankind. God divided humankind in the early portions of the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Now, this is a key event in the narrative of the book of Genesis. What Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, and by the way, this is how the Bible works. It's important not only that we hear what the Bible says, but that we understand something about how the Bible works. And as the Bible goes on, we believe that the Bible is what is called a progressive revelation. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying the Bible fills in all the details as you go on into the Bible. So you learn more about God, more about God's purposes, more about what God is doing on the earth and through his people as you read from Genesis to Revelation than you do just at the beginning in Genesis. God begins to add more and more and tell us as time goes on what happened and what is going on. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8 says something very shocking, and it is this, that at the Tower of Babel, you remember the story in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where God divided the nations. You remember what they were doing? They were building a tower, and the tower is called a ziggurat tower. 
And this was a pyramid structure where the people of the ancient world believed they would climb to the top of this great pyramid, they would offer sacrifices, and the gods would come down and give them knowledge and information. The gods would give them the ability to predict the future for when to, to uh, plant their crops and if there was a famine coming and all this sort of thing. And we see this going on somewhat also in the Bible itself. What happened at the Tower of Babel is the people were building a ziggurat pyramid and they were trying to receive esoteric knowledge from very powerful spirit beings that live in the heavenly realms. Once you think about this for a moment, they believed at the Babel incident that they were going to receive special secret knowledge from very powerful beings that live in another realm. Sounds like something out of a movie, doesn't it? But it's right there in the Bible, and that's what the ancient peoples of the world believed. Now, the situation was so bad at Babel that God scattered the people. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8 tells us that when God scattered the people, because the people were looking to receive knowledge and wisdom and secret and dark arts from these very powerful demonic forces that live in the heavenly realm, God scattered them all over the earth. He confounded their language in Deuteronomy chapter two and chapter 32 and verse 8 says that God actually put these spirit beings in control of the Gentile nations. Think about that. I want to read you a very key passage in the New Testament written by Paul. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20. Listen to what Paul says. He says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I want you to, I, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Did you hear what the Bible just said? The Bible said that the pagan religions of the earth, the idols of the earth, they're not really gods like the pagans and the Gentiles thought they were. But Paul says that these idols, that these gods were actually demons. Wow. It's pretty serious stuff. Now what does this mean? And what bearing does this have on the 58th Psalm? Well, it has every bearing on the 58th Psalm. Because in Psalm 58, the Bible says, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? These are the same beings, the sons of God, the Elohim, that God has placed in power over the Gentile nations. The idea was that the only People, the only nation in the Old Testament that had the one true and living God, the creator God, the redeemer God, the God who was viewed to be at the top of the food chain. That God was worshipped in one place and one place only and that was in Israel. The Jewish people had the one true and living God. And to them, all other gods were merely a farce. And Paul says that the gods of the Gentiles were actually demons. How many people have ever traveled the world and seen temples? You ever seen a temple 
How many people have ever traveled and seen a Hindu temple? Maybe you've seen a Buddhist temple, and in the temple they have a little idol, and they're burning an incense or an offering. Uh, my wife and I used to go to a restaurant when we lived back in Illinois, and I guess they thought that this little statue got hungry. Because we would walk in, and there would be a little statue, and there would be a food offering right before this little statue. Well, the Bible says that those little statues and that the gods that the Gentiles and the pagans worship, that those are actually demons, fallen angels, very bad and evil spirits that have rebelled against God, the true God, the living God. And that is what Psalm 58 is all about. Our world is being run by very powerful beings in the unseen realms who directly influence people and events. These beings also hate God and humanity, and they are doing everything they can to stop God's redemptive purposes. And Psalm 58 is written to remind us of some things. Now this is important, because what you have taking place in the 58th Psalm is very telling. Now here it is. Here's the application. When we look around and we see all the chaos and all the confusion, all the crime, all the corruption, all the bad politics, all the evil, all the wickedness, the things about our culture and society that when Christians look at it, we know that it is wrong. If you was to somehow supernaturally teleport a Jewish person from the first century or from the century that Moses wrote the Pentateuch or from if you was to bring David up here right now, David would tell you what he just told us in the 58th Psalm. And it is that this, these people are working for the enemy. We need to understand that the world that we live in the corrupt politicians, many people who are in great positions of leadership, the ruling classes, the elites of the world, super wealthy, super influential people, the Bible says that unless they have been born again and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, unless they have passed from death to life and believe the gospel message, that these people are being directly influenced by very powerful demons. This is the world that we live in. This is what's going on around us. Our world is being held at siege, we are besieged by powerful demons, Satan, his dark forces, all around us, all the time. And if they're, and listen, there's only two kinds of people. I like what Dr. J. Vernon McGee said. How many people have ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? Uh, he's an old timer from way back. I like him. He said there's two kinds of people in the world, saints and ain'ts. And there's either saints who love the Lord and who are seeking to live their lives out for the glory of God, or they're trying to live by biblical principles, or they ain't. They're outside of the faith. They're outside of God. And we need to be aware that there is a very powerful puppet master behind the veil and what you see with your eyes is only part of the story. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present dark age. He describes the unjust gods. The main charge against these very powerful spirit beings is found in verse 1. He said, do you judge the children of man uprightly? God looks at what is going on in the heavenly realms, in the cosmos, with what these beings are doing to humanity, to our culture, to our society, and God is not pleased with what they're doing. In the 82nd Psalm in verse 1, the Bible said that these very powerful spirit beings that rule the unredeemed from the spirit realm, that they're going to one day, God is going to cast them into outer darkness. They're going to die like men. These beings are not doing what God wants to be done. They're leading humanity astray. I want to show you the great contrast and why I say and why I take the position that the first verse in Psalm 80 or Psalm 58, excuse me, is speaking about the Elohim or the gods in the heavenly realms that rule things. It's because in verse 11, there's a pun that takes place. So verse 1, he said, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? The idea is that these beings are not being just. They're not executing justice but notice verse 11 they're being contrasted with someone who is it well it's God himself God is the true judge of the earth God is the one who always does righteousness God does not seek to lead humanity further into darkness God seeks to bring life and light and truth And these very powerful demons are being compared to God himself. And God says that you are not doing what I want you to do. He gives the reason for their disobedience in Psalm 58 and verse 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrong. Your hands deal out violence on earth. These are corrupt beings. And the people that work for them are likewise corrupt. Why is there so much crime, degradation, corruption, evil in our world? Because our world is being directly influenced by very powerful demonic forces that live in another world, in another realm. This is what the Bible teaches. And humanity is no match for them. They are vastly more powerful than we could ever imagine. When you look around you and you see the corruption in our culture, our society, and our world, know that there are very powerful evil forces seeking to manipulate, to destroy. Jesus Christ says that the devil has come to kill, to steal, and destroy. He is as a roaring lion. This psalm is even going to tell us that. Seeking whom he may devour. Now look at verse 3. Something happens. Now the psalm addresses human beings. How do you know the psalm addresses human beings? Because it mentions the womb. These must be humans in verse 3 because there's only one kind that's born and that's those who come from the womb. But there's something happening. 
Notice that there's an emphasis on two things. There's an emphasis on human births. And notice also in verse 4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent. I wonder where do we meet a great serpent? What part of the Bible talks about a great evil serpent who comes from another realm to lead humanity astray? Genesis chapter 3, very clear. The devil, Satan, our emissary, took upon himself the form of a serpent, a nekesh in Hebrew. It just sounds like a nasty word, doesn't it? Nekesh. It's a serpent. It's a deceiver. It's a very powerful being from another realm who has come to lead humanity astray. And Adam and Eve take the bait, don't they? And they fall from the grace of God. The twin concepts of serpents and humanity being evil from birth appear in Genesis 3 and verse 15. This is a key verse. This is one of the most key verses in all of the Old Testament. Genesis 3, 15. I'll give you a big word to make you think I'm smarter than I really am. Proto-evangelion. It means the first gospel. Proto-evangelion means the first gospel. Where is the gospel first mentioned? It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Let me read it for you. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this talking about? Well, after the original humans, Adam and Eve, disobey the command of God to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God comes and God pronounces a curse on the serpent. And he says, upon your belly you shall go. And the idea is very, very vivid. This very powerful satanic, this Satan, this being, this, this devil that we meet in the Garden of Eden, God says that he's going to make this being low. How low? The dust of the earth. Isaiah chapter 14 says that Lucifer, the son of the morning, desired to be like the Most High. And because Satan desired to be like the Most High, God cursed him and made him the most low. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then God looks at Eve and Adam, and God says, Now because of your disobedience, because of what you have done, and allowing yourself to be bewitched and carried away by the deceptions of Satan... Now you as well must bear the judgment of God. And part of the judgment of God is something called the seed promise. And God tells Eve, he said, Eve, one day you're going to have a seed. And the seed that you're going to have is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And then he looks at the serpent and he says, Serpent, your seed is going to bruise the heel of Eve's seed. And from that moment on, we have one of the most profound themes found anywhere in the Bible. And it's called the conflict of the seeds. The war of the seeds. And the way that the war of the seeds works is that every human being is on either one side or the other. 
Human beings are divided now into two camps. Either they're the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Well, I wonder who was the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who came to break the power of Satan over humanity and to establish his righteous kingdom for an eternity and to buy human beings back from the slave market of sin, procuring eternal salvation and redemption on the cross of Calvary and through his resurrection. And human beings are now divided up way back Way back, all the way in the beginning of time as we know it, human beings are either serving the seed of the serpent or they're serving the seed of the woman who is Christ the Lord. And this is exactly what Psalm 58 is all about. It's about the conflict of the seeds. And God looks at these very powerful spirit beings, these demons that rule and reign humanity over humanity from another realm. And he tells them, he says, human beings are being born and from the very womb they come out sinful. They come out in union with the serpent. And these very powerful demons are manipulating humanity from behind the scenes and causing all sorts of uh, turmoil and drama in our world. Death and destruction. Now, the obvious question is, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do about what we see going on around us? Well, David says in verses 6 through 9, you can pray. You can pray. Moms, when you look around and you see the turmoil, the strife, the evil, the wickedness, the demonic, I mean, obvious, you don't even have to hardly be a Christian to see that corruption is widespread from the top down in our culture. David prays in verse 6, he says, O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. David uses five images to communicate what he is asking God to do. He uses the image of a lion, the image of water, the image of arrows, the image of a slug, and the image of a stillborn child. This is a very striking prayer that David offers up. David is praying an imprecation. An imprecation is a curse. David is cursing the enemies of God, both in the realm that is seen and the realm that is unseen. Do we pray like this? David did. When was the last time that when we looked around and we saw Satan and his dark forces ravaging our society and everybody aligning with him that we prayed, Lord, knock their teeth out. Defang them, declaw them. We pray imprecations and curses against very powerful demonic beings. Asking God to pull down the strongholds of Satan, Paul prays in the book of Corinthians. Asking God to destroy his enemies who stand against him and his redemptive purposes for the world. These beings care nothing about you. They care nothing about me. They care about one thing, and that is destroying God's creation. They want to see humanity laid to waste and in ruin. 
because they're evil from the inside out, Psalm 58 and verse 2 says. David asked for God to defang his enemies. And God actually did do this for David when he allowed David to defeat Saul on the battlefield. That's in verse 6, but in verse 7, he said, Let them vanish like water that runs away. Somebody says, I wish the water right now would run away. But in the ancient Near East where there's great deserts everywhere, it's an arid climate. Sometimes the, the rain would blow in from the Mediterranean Sea and it would rain in monsoon types uh, of rains. And uh, when the ground is parched and when the ground is dry in the Middle East and it rains and rains and rains, there's great tributaries and great creeks and rivers and so forth that are created but only for a little time. And then the dry, parched ground of the world that David lived in would swallow up the rains. And it would look as if they never were there. And that's what David is praying. Lord, let them run away. Let them vanish into thin air like the water does after a hard rain in the desert. He says in verse 7, when, the, when he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Whatever weapons the enemies of God are forging against God and his people and his purposes, let those weapons be thwarted. Let those weapons be blunted. Using the weapon of division in our country, aren't they? Using the weapon of strife. Hateful, evil words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a cute little nursery rhyme, but it's not true. Words destroy marriages. Words cause wars. Words, words cause all sorts of horrible things. And David says, let their words, let their attacks be blunted. Verse 8 he said, let them be like a snail or a slug that dissolves into slime. Let them be like the lowliest creeping thing. The lowest life form that we can think of. Let the enemies of God be like slugs and snails that just dissolve into their own goo. This is a very vivid imagery, isn't it? This is the way that King David prays against the enemies of God. Do we pray like this? I suspect that in our dignified age, <laughs> we're afraid to pray that God would not the teeth out of the mouth of his enemies. But David wasn't afraid to do that because David understood what was at stake. The future of humanity is at stake. The redemption of the world is what's at stake. Last but not least, this is a very powerful image. I didn't make up this image. The Bible did. Look at what he says in verse 8. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. This is a pun. A poetical pun. On what was said earlier in verse 3. He said the wicked are estranged from the womb. David said, if the wicked are coming out of their mother's wombs, evil, he said, let them never be born. Like a child who dies in infancy, may the, may the enemies of God die as stillborn babies. Wow. Do you pray like that against the enemies of God? 
David did. David did. Maybe we could follow his example. You say, I don't want to be unloving. <laughs> well, neither does God. But nevertheless, we live in a world that is being assailed all around us all the time by very powerful, dark, and satanic forces. What can moms do for their children, for their grandchildren, for their great-grandchildren? They can pray like David prayed. Take them out, Lord. Here's the model prayer. Lord, either change them or remove them. Lord, change them with the gospel. But if they won't change, remove them. An encouraging conclusion. It ends on a high note, doesn't it? The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Wow, what a statement. Can you imagine such a thing? Verse 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. When we look around us and we see all the evil, the wicked, the darkness, Satan and his dark emissaries seeking to destroy God's people, destroy God's work, there's a reward for living righteously, isn't there? That's what David says. He says, don't give up on what you believe to be true about your God. And it is that your God will always bring justice. He will always bring judgment. Every single time, God will do right. That's what Abraham said when the Lord was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God most certainly will. And this is what makes our God so much more wonderful. So much more transcendent than all the other gods, little g's of the earth. Our God is a God of perfect justice, of perfect judgment. He never makes a mistake. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is gracious. And when you see the world around us seemingly crumbling and the forces of darkness assailing the people of God and the purposes of God on all sides, what you can do is pray. Pray like David prayed. Pray for the just God of all the earth to execute his justice and his judgment against his enemies. Let's bow for a brief moment of reflection, shall we? Ryan and the musicians are going to come. He's going to lead us in one stanza. Oh, moms, will you pray this Mother's Day that the enemies of God will be brought low? They will not be able to thwart God's purposes, that they won't be able to destroy God's church? In the country of France right now, there is a church being torn down every two weeks and a mosque to Islam being built every 15 minutes. Pray that the enemies of God will not prevail. 
pray that the just God of all the earth will do right.